podcast has bad words. <laughs> Dude, I'm doing a mohawk. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I do want to talk to you about cutting your hair for the Oh, actually, I was going to ask you about that. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's a flashback scene in our next film. Uh, well, actually, there's quite a few flashback scenes. That's so cool. And my hair is like, um, like a little bit past my shoulders. <laughs> uh, like the one, like the event in Boston, I want to say it was like, Oh no! I'm talking about like like flashback to the corporate world. Oh, <laughs> oh! So you want me to cut my hair? <laughs> oh, we were like totally on a different page. You want me to cut my hair, as in like parting it? I've dude, I've been because long hair problems suck. And every time I'm eating, every time I'm eating, and I'm like, <laughs> and I got and I got hair in my mouth. Like I'm like, God, I really want to cut my hair off. But then I look in the mirror, and I'm, but I'm like, I fucking love my long hair. But it has but, energy, man. <laughs> I really like it, dude. So. Dude, I would, I totally would be down to to do it short. Are you recording this, Sean? All right, so so I think that's a, that's a good place to to start this maximal <laughs> we were segment. Talking about long hair problems. Uh, Ryan and I are working <laughs> on our second film. It's called Less Is Now, and it's based around this talk that we gave in fifty different cities in 2017. But then uh, we're making it much more cinematic with Matt Diavella, the guy who directed our first film, and. Um, uh, we're, there's there's several flashback scenes of me and Ryan in the corporate world, and so we're, we're taught. <laughs> this is actually the first conversation Ryan ha- had about this because Ryan's been gone for three weeks. He's been in Scotland, and uh, Ireland, and Ireland, in Montana. <laughs> yes, and a quick quick trip to Mars. <laughs> Very quick, <laughs> only one night. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I mean the Airbnb suck there. <laughs> yeah, uh, so. Uh, we're we're talking about maybe Ryan. Uh, so uh, if you're listening to this and you want to put something in the comments, um, should Ryan cut his hair for the flashback scene back to corporate Ryan? I don't know if you all remember this. Actually, if you Google Google image search Ryan Nicodemus, you'll find a bunch of short hair pictures of it's him. Not even, we don't even need to ask the audience, man. Like I would just do it because like either way, I'm going to be wearing a wig. Yes. I'm going to be wearing a wig, or I'm going to have my hair actually short. But the problem is, is See, when we were in the corporate world, he had the long hair. Yeah, oh, but wow. only for about about nine months. Okay. So I my hair was this length all the way up until age twenty nine, and I grew it out to be fairly long, not as long as yours now. And I realized I looked terrible with long hair, <laughs> and so Ryan's just no, handsome either way. Whatever. So it's uh, it's really unfortunate. <laughs> anyway, uh, we're here with Alex Benayan. Uh, his book, The Third Door. Uh, I want to talk to you about this now. Before we dive into our surprise questions for this maximal episode, um, let's we have this little segment called More About Less, where we, we, we do a little bit of reading. And I want to read from the beginning of your book because mm. the, the title at first was elusive to me until I, of course, opened up the book. And on the very first page, now, I'm only 97 pages into the book currently. Uh, Ryan made it all the way through. I think you said you read the entire book Dude, in one it's day. Dude, one, it's one of the few books I literally picked up and read through. And by, by like the last 120 pages because I'm like laughing through it man and I'm like oh my god like this dude fails just like I fail <laughs> yeah. and like um, uh, my my partner Mariah she was like oh I wish you would read it out loud I'm like well I'm I got 120 pages left but I'll read it out loud so I literally read the last no 120 way. pages out loud to her. Yeah, yeah. it was great it was great <laughs> did you do voices yes <laughs> my favorite was uh, Larry King doing his voice <laughs> let me tell you something Alex <laughs> <laughs> when I was doing the audiobook people were like Alex don't do voice I'm like I'm gonna do voices. <laughs> you, you did voices in the audio. Oh, I didn't. That's Not great, like man. extreme, but I definitely was like, "What do you want, kid?" Yeah. You know, for Larry King. Yeah. And yeah. Like, all right. So yeah, this is the first page fun. from the third <laughs> door. Uh, life, business, success—it's just like a nightclub. There are always three ways in. There's the first door. 
the main entrance, where the line curves around the block, where 99% of people wait around hoping to get in. There's the second door, the VIP entrance, entrance, where the billionaires, celebrities, and the people born into it slip through. That's how Milburn gets in. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was born with a rusty spoon in my mouth. Oh, yeah. I forgot. Uh, <laughs> all right. But what no one tells you is there's always, always the third door. It's the entrance where you have to jump out of line, run down the alley, bang on the door a hundred times, crack open the window, sneak through the kitchen. There's always a way. Whether it's how Bill Gates sold his first piece of software or how Steven Spielberg became the youngest studio director in Hollywood history, they all took the third door. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the cover of this book, Alex. Now, by the way, like I said, I'm, I'm about 100 pages in. Uh, you're in Barcelona right now where, where, where I am. Uh, we've just been introduced to Elliot. Can we talk about Elliot? Oh, yeah. Let's talk about Elliot. I love him so much. <laughs> well... What's funny about going on a quest like this, I'm, you know, I'm sure you guys can relate. There's what you want to happen, and then there's what actually happens. Mm. And Elliot's a great example. He was not on my to-do list. Mm-hmm. You know, on my to-do list was interview Bill Gates, inter- you know, yeah. interviews Lady Gaga. And you saw Elliot as a door to get to these people. Exactly. Yeah. So I was... In fact, I think there's a... a, a a sort of subchapter called like who's my insider or inside my inside man, man. Yeah. yeah inside man yeah or inside woman exactly inside <laughs> person inside person with Elliot so this happened about one year into the process so you have to understand you know I started this journey 18 years old a freshman in college not knowing what I want to do with my life I set off on this quest to interview the world's most successful people thinking it would only take me a few months because I thought I would just call up Bill Gates and it'd be super easy and you know, to give people a little bit of context, I, when I decided I would go on this journey to do all these interviews, I didn't have any money. And the price is right. <laughs> <laughs> Which I have yet to look up this clip, by the way. I'm sure it's on YouTube. Yeah, I can show it to you. I gotta check it out. I, you know, I didn't have any money, so I decided to do the logical thing and pull an all-nighter to study because it was two nights before final exams, mm-hmm. but I didn't study for finals. I said I had to hack the price is right. And I went on the show the next day and did this ridiculous strategy and ended up winning the whole showcase showdown, winning a sailboat, selling the sailboat, and that's how I funded the book. Yeah, like $16,000 or I just, lo- like, this, 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 done, yeah. this, this, the cliff notes he just gave of this story, like, does not do the story any justice. <laughs> I like, appreciate it's, that. it's so good, man. But, so, okay. So that's when it took off. Once I had the money, I was like, all right, game on. So it took a whole year for me to, you know, my holy grail interview was Bill Gates. And it took a whole year to finally track down, you know, Bill Gates' chief of staff, the person who makes pretty much all the decisions. He was going to be your inside man. Right. And it took a whole year to just get that person on the phone. And, you know, in hindsight, actually, I'm surprised I even got him on the phone. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Literally, I'm a random 18-year-old kid, you know, freshman in college. And, you know, my phone rings. I'm in like a CVS parking lot. And it's like Seattle area code. And I know there's, I don't know anyone in Seattle. So I know that can only be one person. And I pick up the phone and he's like, so you want to interview Bill, huh? And I'm like, yeah, you know, it's my biggest dream. I'm like 19. I'm like, and you know, I start pitching him the book. He's like, look, I already know all about it. I love what you're doing. I love that you're trying to help your generation. And in my head, I think I'm like 95% there. Mm -hmm. And he's like, but you're only about 5% there. And he goes on to explain to me that Bill Gates doesn't do interviews with random 
college newspapers. He's like, go get a publishing deal with like Penguin or Random House. Go build more momentum and call me back. And he hangs up. Yeah. Which, by the way, uh, it, it, you you break into a, a story about how to become a published author in a way that very few books about publishing actually even touch on mm. yeah and i find i find i found that to be particularly useful now ryan and i took a completely different path um but uh, with respect to, to publishing but if someone is looking for a we started our own publishing company um and uh ryan managed up to 24 interns at one time that were all working for us <laughs> and um working with us i should say and um we learned a whole lot about publishing, and that that's one route to take. Uh, the route you took, though, I, and and the route that you write about in in the third door is you set out a template to ma- that makes it seem like this is entirely possible. Because that was the one thing I remember when I when I left the uh, corporate yeah. world, I was I was thirty years old. Uh, Ryan and I we were at like sort of peak success, middle management. I managed one hundred and fifty retail stores in the corporate world, and like. People looked at us as successful, but I didn't feel very successful. Like I was living the wrong dream. It wasn't my dream. It was this this template. I had been sold this meme of the American dream. Mm-hmm. And um, when I left, people asked, well, what are you going to do? Like, What competitor are you going to? I'm like, no, I'm just going to be a writer. And, and people were like, uh, no, like you, that's, <laughs> they're like they're like okay, oh, wink, they get wink. scared for you, oh, right? Yeah. <laughs> is, I, yeah, I've been there, man. Yeah, and, and, but here's the weird thing: they act like no one has ever made a living from writing before, and I'm like, well, wait a minute. Like you realize that there are people that there is a template out there. I'm not the first person who's ever struck out on his own to try to make a living as a writer. But you you talk about that in the book. Maybe expand on that process a little bit. Well, the only reason I wanted a publishing deal was because Bill Gates, chief of staff said, you need one to talk to Bill. Mm-hmm. So I was like, great. And I think what's funny, even just as I'm talking out loud, the third door is so much about, all right, someone says no and finding another way. Sometimes someone says, this is how you do it. And sometimes you're like, okay. Yeah. Now the trick is what's the third door to get the publishing deal. Right. But I don't think the answer is always disregarding, you know, advice or something like that. Right, right, right. That's and a good point. So you want me to focus on the publishing deal or Elliot? <laughs> no, they, we've, we've asked him to talk about the book cover, Elliot, and the <laughs> publishing right. process. All right. But I can do all three, but not at the same time. Yeah. What's the... Um, well, what's yeah, the I, I guess, uh, I mean, I think the story of Elliot leads to the publishing process. So so maybe just, yeah, kind of keep going with your story with Elliot, and that'll lead to how you got the book published, basically. Right, so pretty much Gates' chief of staff is like, look, you need a, a publishing deal and you need more momentum, call me back. And I'm like 19. First of all, I don't even know what the word momentum means, mm. you know, outside of like a physics class. And I remember just standing there in the parking lot wanting to like pull my hair out with just like two words echoing in my head, you know, 5%. And I remember going back to my dorm room and sort of just like throwing myself into a ball on the floor thinking if I'm 5% there to Bill Gates and I'm on the phone with his chief of staff by this point, I'm at like negative 50% with everyone else I want to interview. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm at negative 50% with, you know, Bill Clinton or Richard Branson and I don't know if you guys have ever had one of these moments, but when I'm in like my lowest points, that's when I start procrastinating the most. Mm. And I don't know why, but I was like, oh, Richard Branson and Bill Clinton? Didn't someone once tell me they like spoke on a cruise ship once? So I'm like the king of procrastinating on Google. So I'll just like Google random things just to get my mind off. It's just a form of distracting yourself. Yeah. So I like Google, you know, Bill Clinton, Richard Branson cruise ship. And this article pops up and it's like, it's on fastcompany.com. I'll never forget this. It's like, 
Summit at Sea takes the high seas with Bill, you know, with Richard Branson and Gary Vaynerchuk and Tim Ferriss. And I'm like, read, I click on, I'm reading this article, you know, Blake Mycoskie of Tom's Shoes and The Roots are the band by the pool. And I'm like, this is my book in cruise ship form. <laughs> like, this is amazing. And I'm like, a cruise ship is way harder than a book. So who, who did this? I'm reading and I'm reading. And at the end of the article, it's like, Summit series was started by serial entrepreneur, CEO, Elliot Bisno. And I'm, you know, imagining this, you know, big hotshot in a suit and I'm reading and it's like, Elliot Bisno founded this and this company and age 26, I'm like, I literally, I will never forget literally sitting back in my chair thinking that I read it wrong. And cause you know, I had a 26 year old cousin, like 26 year olds don't do this. Right. So I go to Google and I type in Elliot Bisno. And I get sucked into a Google, you know, rabbit hole mm. where, you know, you're missing meals. So many hours are passing because I'm just reading everything I can. And I'm on like the 27th O of Google at this point, you know, <laughs> and it was weird because there was a lot of stuff on the Internet about him, but nothing that really described who he was. Remember the movie, the movie Catch Me If You Can? Yeah. yeah. It was like the movie, it was, Elliot was like the guy from Catch Me If You Can, where there was a lot about him, but nothing yeah. that actually said who he was. Right. What was. What was the line, mystery creates history? Mystery makes history. Makes history, yeah. Yeah, like, who, first of all, who even says that? <laughs> He's like, mystery, and walks away. He's like a character of his own movie, you know? <laughs> yeah. And that's actually a great way to describe him. Um, yet somehow he's also the most authentic. It's He's a very, you know, fascinating person. And... I remember by the end of the night, you know, I'd missed two meals without noticing. I'd been sitting at my computer for hours. And on the one hand, I couldn't wrap my hands around this guy. And on the other hand, I felt this deep connection to a complete stranger feeling like he was like my big brother. You know, I never even met him. Mm. And I had never done it before in my life, but I literally, I think it was just because I was in this very low point, I closed my eyes and prayed. And I pray that if there's one person I want to learn from right now, it's this guy, Elliot Bisno. And I remember opening my journal and writing, I, again, I'd never done this before. I wrote dream mentors on the top and I drew a line under it. And on the first line I wrote Elliot Bisno. Now, two weeks later, I'm in the library, you know, studying for an accounting final exam and Sure enough, whenever I'm studying, there's always my brain is somewhere else. And I'm just thinking about this guy, Elliot. You know, I can't focus. And I'm like, all right, I need to focus for accounting. Like this final is going to make or break my grade. Let me just email Elliot so I stop thinking about him. So I can sort of like get it out of my head. Mm. And I gave myself, you know, like 30 minute, a 30 minute break from studying. Of course, it turned into like a three-hour session of writing this like perfect cold email. Yeah. You know, I used the cold email template <clears throat> from the book. Yeah. And I send Elliot. I don't even know his email. Ad. It was e I'm not kidding. It was easier to find Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates' email address online than Elliot's. Oh, wow. So I sort of had to like guess his email address. And I sort of like send this email into the abyss. And I think it was like five minutes later, I get a reply. Great email. What are you doing Thursday? And I open my calendar and Thursday, you know, in big bold letters, it's like accounting final exam. And I respond to Elliot saying the only thing I can. I'm completely free. What do you have in mind? <laughs> and he's like, great. Meet me at the Long Beach, you know, Westin Hotel at 8 a.m. And I was going to school in L.A. So it was only like an hour drive. And it was great. My final was at noon. He wants to meet at 8 a.m. for 15 minutes. I'll make it in time for both. 
And he's like, oh, by the way, before you meet me, read this one chapter in this book. I think you'll really like it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my dream mentor tells me to read one chapter. You know, fuck accounting. I'm reading that whole book. <laughs> so I show up, you know, it's 8 a.m. And Elliot walks in, you know, really slowly, his eyes sort of like scanning the room. And he sits down in our 15-minute meeting turns into a four hour meeting. I miss my accounting final, but it's actually okay because I end up spending the whole yeah. summer traveling the world with him. Mm-hmm. And over the past seven years, he's not only become a mentor, but a best friend. Uh, and he's like my brother. And actually mm-hmm. last night I was with him and his newborn son. Oh wow. And That's it's awesome. just crazy to look at how, and we talked about this in the beginning, how you set off on a journey for one thing, but you get something completely different. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the things I'm the most grateful now for. Yeah. Or, or maybe you get there and like it happens a completely different way. So so Elliot, he it's was... Love people, use things. Yeah. I went on a journey to find how to get things. Yeah. And I was given people who I love. You were given yeah. love It's such people. a good title. Wait, let, I love let's, that. Let's talk about how uh, your parents felt about this because they weren't all oh, on God. board you, right away, especially when you were I like, literally can close my eyes and see my mom just going ballistic right now. I know exactly <laughs> where we were standing. Oh, oh God. And God love her. She's just looking out She's for the, the best, She's the most man. loving yeah. mom. <clears throat> but we have a lot of people listening to this whose parents are, are loving parents, but they're also overly cautious, overly protective. Or almost normally cautious. Yeah. yeah. And their kids like me are doing preposterous yeah. things. And they're saying, Alex, don't do what Elliot's telling you to do. Follow the template. They're, first of all, they're saying, who is this Elliot guy? Oh, oh, you're telling me this rich CEO wants to take a 19-year-old to Barcelona for no reason other than to help him? Give me a break. <laughs> right. Right? Mm-hmm. And I, even as I see right now, I would tell my kid the same thing. All right. Give me a break. Mm. Um, so how did you combat all that that resistance from your parents? Because it wasn't just your mom. It was your mom. It was your dad. It was your grandma. It was your sisters at a certain point. Or maybe one yeah. of them was with you and one of them was was giving you resistance. I think the context is important. My family are Iranian Jewish refugees. They fled from Iran 40 years ago because we were Jewish. And during the Islamic revolution, if they would have stayed in Iran, they would have died. Mm. And they came to America with a very simple idea. If they sacrificed everything to give their kids an education, we wouldn't have to suffer the way they suffered. So to me, you know, being born with like MD stamped on my ass wasn't just like a nice idea. It was my family's entire plan. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was my grandparents' Mm. entire hope. And thus it was their expectation. That is the kindest way to put it, right? Mm -hmm. It's like take an expectation and wrap it in fear and put it into a shame sandwich and that's oh god that sounds so extreme but you know what this is good though for our listeners yeah. because i think this is like oh wow that really opened something up <laughs> well i mean th- this is kind of like the uh you know the worst case example of getting resistance from your family and who your- you love yeah i think that's the thing no one talks about mm. if you didn't love them it wouldn't matter and also you you feel like they have your best interests in mind i you- think they are trying to yeah yeah it's not that's their intention and it's not like they are i mean ryan often talks about like he has a different belief system from his parents but he doesn't believe that they necessarily had his best interests of mine all the time uh to to put it kindly yeah and but that's putting it kindly (laughs) but but with you you, was conscious or unconscious um, do you think they were sitting there and i i I have no idea I, I, i think that uh they are in their own minds they were doing what was best 
for them that uh, that they in turn thought was best for me. Yeah, of yeah. course. Yeah. 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 I would I would say that's most people. Sure. I'll catch myself doing that too. Mm-hmm. Um, some people just don't have the awareness of, wow, what I'm doing is really not serving my kids because they're just so trapped in their own mm-hmm. things. They mm-hmm. don't have bad intentions, but just because you don't have bad intentions doesn't mean your actions are yeah rose roses yeah. yeah so so they had this plan for you and and i think that's maybe where a lot of parents make mistakes or you know friends close friends or whatever they have this plan for you and then when you deviate from the plan world war three yeah and again it's just it was so intense at the time because it wasn't like i was saying hey guys i'm not going to be a doctor and i'm going to be a lawyer hey guys i'm not going to be a doctor i'm going to go get an mba it was like, hey guys, I'm not gonna be a doctor. I don't know what I want to do. And this random stranger who I emailed on the internet wants to take me to Europe tomorrow morning. <laughs> you know, this yeah. is literally like parent nightmare 101. You right. know, and the worst part is, God, this is weird to even think. About. I had the prices right money, which was like really enabling for him and empowering for me. Yeah. If I had to, you know. And again, I know a lot of people don't have that, so I'm, I'm very conscious of that. But I had this, it was almost like my risk bank account. I had $16,000 to do crazy risk to follow my dream. And Which, I had, by the way, most people at 19 can figure out a way to, to, to make that. Um, flipping sneakers, yeah, selling yeah, stuff on working Instagram. Working as a waiter for six months. You know, you, you, there are things you can do to say, especially if you're still living at home uh, right after high school. You know, I'm, I'm thinking uh, one of uh, Sean's uh, daughters, this is, this is her final summer of freedom, right? Um, and so she, did she just graduate or no, this is, this is she, she, she'll be a senior this year. Yeah. And so, uh, I'm thinking a year from now, next summer, basically, she'll be able to still live with Sean. I hope he doesn't kick her out. Like the, <laughs> the Sean's got to be the nicest, most laid back dad I have ever met. But good for you, Sean. She'll be able to get a job as a waitress or, 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 you know, doing something, an Uber driver, whatever she wants to do and still live under her parents' roof and save up as much. She can have that risk bank account. If you're, if you're lucky, yeah. you know, I also know a lot of stories of people who work, three jobs to pay for their parents' chemo treatments or their brother's, you know, opioid addiction treatment, you know. And it's amazing when you have leverage like that, all of a sudden you find possible ways. Right. So I'm definitely cognizant of the fact that I was really lucky in that department Mm -hmm. um, in the sense that I did have this amount to, you know, go with my dreams. So going back, you know, to the main story, this was my mom's biggest nightmare. And I think what's happened over and over and over again on this seven-year journey of writing the third door is if I had to pull back and look at the milestones of the journey, it wasn't the accomplishments that were the main milestones that changed me. If I zoom back far enough, mm-hmm. the main markers of the milestone, and I would imagine you can relate to this in some degree, are when you are completely terrified the fork in the roads are the moments of the deepest, strongest fears. Mm-hmm. And the question you're going to ask yourself is not does this fear exist or not exist? Because when people say, oh, I'm fearless, I'm like, you're psycho. Because <laughs> right. there's no, you know, there's no human being who's fearless. 
And what I've learned, and I grew up with tremendous amounts of fear in my childhood, even to this day. And what I learned doing the interviews for The Third Door, because I assume Bill Gates or Elon Musk had to have been fearless or else how else would they have achieved what they did? Hmm. But what I learned through every single interview is not only were they all scared in the beginning, they were terrified the whole way through. And that didn't make any sense to me. And what I realized is that they weren't fearless. They were courageous. And while the words sound very similar, the mm. difference is critical. You know, fearlessness is jumping off the cliff and not thinking about it. Mm -hmm. You know, that's idiotic. Right. But courage is acknowledging your fear, analyzing the consequences, and deciding you still care so much about it, you'll take one thoughtful step forward anyway. Mm. And those are the moments, if you zoom back far enough, those are the markers of the journey. Yeah. Let me talk to you about... about um what I would call persistence etiquette because it <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard someone call it that and that I'm gonna is the best way to frame it yeah. Be because that's I, good that's really good oh I'm gonna use that that's great <laughs> at first you were kind of a jerk with uh, the yeah. emails that you sent you learned something from Tim Ferriss an idiot yeah. Unintentionally yeah, a jerk unintentional or an jerk, yeah. uh, natural idiot. Yeah, because yeah. we yeah. all think everyone starts out when you're new. Everyone starts out not knowing how it works. Yeah, and you, you hear about Colonel sense. Sanders being told five five hundred times, so you just got to barrel through those nose right. and keep going. Yeah, yeah, and it, I, I hate it's worse. The worst emails I get are like, "This is my third follow up with you," and it's like, "Well, shit, I've ignored you two times already. Yeah. Now you're in my spam folder." And oh so, man. Um, Quick aside, I had someone email me the other day. Would you please respond to my email? I don't want to be a pest or anything. So I responded. Thank you. Not interested. Well, can I ask you a few questions? I was just like, you're instantly going in my spam folder. Yeah. Like, yeah, anyway. So so <clears throat> you learned some lessons about um, the appropriate amount of persistence, how to be persistent without being a pest. I think if I zoom out again and give a headline answer, it takes tremendous empathy, which when you're starting, you inherently don't have. I didn't have it. And again, I don't think it's when you're starting out at 19 per se. It's, it's again, it's not about an age in life. It's a stage. If you're 60 and super successful and you're completely transitioning your career in this new arena, you don't have empathy for the other people in that arena because you're new to it. Yeah. So I just think it's a matter of empathy. Now that's, you can't really wrap your hands around it. I'll give people some tactical things that they can use. When you're cold emailing, someone who's a CEO or anyone who's well-known. The more well-known, the more inundated they are. Here are some simple do's and don'ts that I learned from Tim Ferriss from making my own mistakes. And he was kind enough, in, literally in my interview with him, to give me like my own personal, like, you're being an idiot, come to Jesus moment. Mm -hmm. And these are some of the things he told me. Number one, if it is longer, if it takes longer than 60 seconds to read what you just wrote, the answer is no. Mm -hmm. Number one. Mm -hmm. Number. What's crazy about it is, you know, 99% of people who are listening to this right now are going to be like, yeah, that's true for some people, but wait until I write my thing. Yeah. My email will be so compelling. I can do, I can get away with it's just guess what yeah you're, you're not dennis johnson you're not don delillo people aren't aren't itching to to it and if i got an email from don delillo maybe like i actually right. I saw this great there's a great onion article um uh <laughs> that's always a great way to start a sentence. <laughs> i'm interested i'm gonna I'm quote interested. the onion here's here's our <laughs> as the great philosopher <laughs> the onion ones. here's our david foster wallace segment of of the podcast um <laughs> It, uh, the the Onion article, uh, I think it's from 2004, so he was still alive at the time. Um, 
the Onion article said, um, girlfriend stops reading David Foster Wallace's breakup letter at page 25. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, really? It was quite good. And I could see where it was going. But that's I was, so, I have a friend who's obsessed with David Foster Wallace. I'm going to use that. Yeah, that's yeah. so good. Sean, put a link to the Onion article in, in the oh, show notes. That's really but nice. But I, I, it's the same thing. Like, even, even there yeah. with someone like that. And, and so there's the, this... Um, uh, I think it's Mark Twain quote that we often talk about. Like, I'm sorry this letter is so long. I didn't have time to make it shorter. Take the time to make it shorter. It mm. shows it shows empathy and thoughtfulness mm. that if you're emailing someone who's probably inundated with a lot of messages, you're showing that you care about their time. And if you're reaching out to a stranger, especially from a place of need or guidance, you better come with a lot of empathy and thoughtfulness saying, you know, and the cold email, you want me to share the Tim Ferriss cold email template? Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. it's super helpful. This is from the four hour work week, right? This is actually, he, the only place he's ever shared this is in the third door. Oh, okay. Awesome. Which is a very big honor and I'm very grateful for Tim. Cool. He said, this is how it works. If you're emailing a CEO, a VIP, and I've seen teenagers use this to get emails back from Sheryl Sandberg since the book's been published. I've also seen financial advisors at Merrill Lynch use it to close deals. Mm. So like what's that's been, that's what's actually blown my mind. I imagine the teenagers would find a lot of use to it. Extremely successful people using it. I couldn't have seen that. Mm. So this is how it works. Dear so-and-so, I know you're incredibly busy and get a lot of emails. So this will only take 60 seconds to read. Boom. Next paragraph. This is where you put one to two sentences max of who you are and what context is relevant to that person. This is not your biography. This is one to two sentences of context that's relevant to the person reading it, which means every person you email probably has a different context paragraph. Boom. Next paragraph. Again, one to two sentences max of a very specific question they can answer without much thinking. If you're emailing Ryan saying, hey, what should I do with my life? Even yeah. if you're his best friend, he doesn't know the answer to that, right? Yeah, yeah. But if someone said, hey, I'm looking to make my own documentary, what's one book or podcast you recommend a young person looking right. to get Right, I know exactly where to go with you that. Yeah, exactly where to go with that. And that opens just the door of communication, yeah. right? And it actually gives you something of value. Mm -hmm. The final paragraph is the clincher. I totally understand if you're too busy to reply. Even a one or two line response will completely make my day. All the best, Alex. Yeah. Mm. And it is shocking. Now, a lot of people ask, oh, well, what's the good follow? You know, what's the good uh, subject line? The shorter, the better. Mm -hmm. And a question, the better. I have my personal favorite, which is like, you know, Ryan, your advice, question mark. Mm. Everyone opens that, mm. <laughs> you know, you know, even if it's like Barack, your advice, he's like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, uh, I, 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 now it has to be genuine. If you're saying sure. Ryan, your advice and I'm pitching you a product. Right. Spam. Right. You know? yeah. The, the, uh, when the Obama campaign was, you know, they, they, they did a really Unicorn. good job of, uh, of, of using the, the new digital tools, whether it was email or social media, but apparently their most, from what I understand, their most successful email that they sent out the subject line was, hey, and that was it. Hey, there, period. Now, there was a couple. There was hey, and then yeah. the other one, I think in the re-election campaign was, uh -huh. I think hey was the first one. Uh -huh. The second one for the re-election campaign is, Barack is not a unicorn. 
Mm. Mm. Okay. I like that. But but four, going four words. Going August, with not five words, yeah. Going with going with that hey though. You do want to be careful if you're reaching out because you had that whole thing where you reached out to I forget who it was and you were like, "Hey, so and so, I'm going to yeah. treat you like my friend." And like, yeah, yeah, but but like it was coming from this guy you already knew. Exactly, so it, it, there was so context. It's, it's he signed from, up for Barack Obama's newsletter. Yeah. He says, "Hey, yes. you're going to." That's open. appropriate. When I Barack is talking an, to you, he can say, "Hey." Yeah, right. I just got an email from Barack Obama and it says, "Hey, yeah. open." <laughs> right. Um, yeah. I, I know we're when, friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my I, I I try to make my emails aggressively short, like aggressively concise, um, and and the reason being it has to do with the wasting of someone's time. I remember when we first started blogging back in 2010. We started theminimalists.com. That's how this whole thing started, and yeah, I would write 4,000 word blog posts. And um, guess what? You know what's more effective? that same blog post in 400 words yeah it's a lot it's actually a lot harder to write and that's what i teach in my writing class is uh when, when i teach students it's like it, it mm. good writing is rewriting yeah and i think that's especially true with if you're soliciting someone via email yeah, yeah you can write write the thousand word email that's fine you have to create all that sediment i just talked about this with uh, jay nash recently on the podcast um you create all the sediment so you can go panning for gold yeah that's great you actually touch on that in your book i forget who it was with my angela or something but they were talking my about, angela, yeah. yeah what was that quote that she said do you remember uh, like a million quotes yeah right <laughs> but the, the writing one specifically oh do you know what actually I, wow I, this is actually not in the book oh okay this is in my interview with Maya Angelou. This is something that just sort of didn't really fit into the chapter. But she was giving me writing advice and she talked about, you know, trimming, you know, you have to cut things down. Mm-hmm. Pretty much what you said. And I I was just starting writing and I had like a visceral response. I'm like, but isn't that like killing your babies? And mm-hmm. she said, no, mm-hmm. it is giving your babies more room to breathe. Mm-hmm. And I was like, ah, she's right. Because <laughs> yeah. it's easy to write 4,000 words stream of consciousness. It's hard to write 500. Well, this is a question. Are you writing? This is a question if you're writing a blog post or if you're writing an email to a CEO or someone well known. Are you writing for yourself or are you writing for them? Yeah, Mm -hmm. well, I think. Is it your journal entry or is it something that's actually soliciting a response? Mm -hmm. Right. A journal entry is something that is is just expressive, does not require an audience. Um, If you're writing to someone else, it has to be both expressive and communicative. Yeah. And uh, I think when you're able to marry the two, expression makes it interesting, but the communication tells them what you're trying to to communicate. Doing so with brevity, as they say, brevity is the soul of wit. Uh, doing so with brevity is what makes it interesting. It makes it, it's what I call narrative urgency. You know, the first sentence yeah. should serve the second sentence. The second sentence should serve the third sentence. And, and uh, Alex, you're, you're a really good writer, man. I, I want to acknowledge yeah. you for I that. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Yeah. Man. Uh, it took seven years of rewriting. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and so the, the writing part is the... Comp- four, four years, seven year journey before of those years were rewriting. A lot of it's composition, but what makes the writing meaningful is not just the stream of consciousness, as Ryan calls it, some Joycean, crazy uh, uh, Ulysses thing. Um, uh, it's it's actually taking the time to rewrite the writing. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we have a bunch of questions here. We before do. we get into Let's these questions, it. though, what would you tell my six-year-old daughter about success? Mm. There's so many things I even just love about that question. Her, you know, a six-year-old specifically. Yeah. 
I actually wouldn't inundate them. Let's just talk about her. I wouldn't inundate her with more information because what she needs is actually permission to be herself. Mm. And what I would tell her is keep doing what's fun for you right now. Mm. Really keep doing what's fun for you. Because I think when you're six, especially if you're growing up in America, there are, you know, one of the great things about spending a seven-year journey tracking down these successful people is I got a lot of rejections. And one of the byproducts of this journey was many years of therapy. (laughs) Something I've learned in therapy that changed my life is that there is a difference between implicit and explicit messaging. You know, for example, in our childhood, an explicit message is... You know, my mom telling me, eat your vegetables. That's an explicit message from a parent. The implicit message is it's two o'clock in the morning. I see my mom eating, you know, Rocky Road ice cream in bed. Mm. That's the implicit message. And it is the implicit messages that have the strongest hold on us. It is the implicit messages that have the strongest hold on us. And look, you can even take it to the business world. Your boss says, we love innovation. That is the explicit value system of the company. Mm Mm-hmm. But the second someone messes, you know, takes a risk, messes up, and gets fired, that's the implicit message of the company, right. and that's the that's the stronger message. It's showing yeah. versus telling, yeah. right? And if you're <laughs> six years old growing up in America, but honestly, it's not even America at this point. With Instagram and the internet, world culture is sort of slowly morphing into one, for better or for worse. And there is an implicit message, right around six, seven, eight years old, that. Making mistakes makes you a bad or lesser person. It sort of seeps in right. Or you you sort of can, I'm sure you can probably see it with your kids of like, if you look at a six-year-old's eyes versus a nine-year-old's eyes, they're a little different. Mm. In the sense of the nine-year-old is a little bit more aware of, or trying to be more aware of what's happening in the room, what people are thinking, if they're, you know, allowed to eat the cookie yet or not eat it yet. They're, they're a little bit more aware. Mm. And what I would do for a six-year-old is just give them, these implicit messages are starting to seep in. I would almost like just swat them away Mm. and just say, keep doing what's fun for you. It's going to work out great. Mm. Mm. Yeah. All right. We've got some questions here. Surprise questions from from Podcast Sean. Bobby asks, what is the one skill every successful person must have regardless of their career path Mm. or industry? Oh, man. Is there something here? Is is there one skill? I'm so excited. I'm like banging on the table. (laughs) (laughs) Is there there one skill that you found that was a commonality? Yes. And what's crazy is I've been talking about this topic for eight, nine years now, and I've never given this answer, which is why I'm excited. I think this is a new answer that I'm seeing more and more with clarity. Okay. Good decision-making. Mm. Mm. Now, that's so... as No, you asked the one skill that all of them have in common. Mm-hmm. It's good decision-making. Yeah. And... E- no, no one has, you know, 100% perfect decision. Literally, no one. Has right. that on earth. You're a human being. Yeah. And you're not Nostradamus. You cannot predict the future. So no one has a perfect one. But if you look at it, what is Warren Buffett doing? He's making good decisions. Yeah. What is, you know, Steve Jobs doing? He made good decisions. What when Larry King, and again, some of them are conscious, some of them are unconscious, some of them are circumstantial, some of them are planned out and five years in advance, even Larry King, when he's doing an interview and he asks a question, he does not say what underwear are you wearing? He asks you, 
why did you get into podcasting? Mm -hmm. That's a decision. Yeah. That's a decision when you're talking, you know, when you're Jeff Bezos and you're deciding, do we create the Alexa or do we not? That's a, it's good decision making. Mm-hmm. And then the question is, how do you foster that? And how do you practice good decision making? That's a whole, that's a whole arena right there. Yeah. Well, the simplest advice is often. Well, yeah, it's often not the easiest advice. And Josh and I talk about all the time how simple is not easy. Like simple is actually more difficult than just going with the flow. Because, you know, I think about like maybe a good skill is, well, persistence. That's got to be your best skill. But even persistence, that takes good decision. Persistence is good decision making. Do I keep asking or do I stop? Right. Exactly. It's funny because I have like, I I was writing down during the break looking at this question that the biggest skill is adaptation or really letting go of expectations it falls into the same thing though. yeah exactly falls yeah. into that category absolutely man so um yeah i, I agree man that's i'm changing man. my answer to yeah that's good cool. there's good a lot of new making. shit going on at this table right now like, <laughs> i'm surprised too this is great i dig it so uh sean let's put a link to we have a essay on our website called how to make a damn decision um so maybe link to that but also uh, if if you're there's one skill you want to improve one one other thing that i i would I would say is really helpful is learn how to write better. Um, and, and the reason being is writing helps you not only communicate better, but it helps you think better. It helps mm. you better understand how you think. Uh, I, I bet, Alex, as you were writing The Third Door, a lot of this was like, uh, you were working it out as you were writing it out, and it helped Not a you lot better. Of it, all of it. Yeah, yeah, and it helped you better understand what your thoughts yes, were. Yes, yes, yes. As you tried to communicate them, so if you learn how to improve your writing, and the, the best way to do that is to to write, uh, whether you start a blog or you are journaling or you're writing a book, uh, and soliciting real feedback from people. Not yes. saying, do you like it? Because then that's asking you to say yes. But saying, how could this improve? Right, yeah. right. And in and, and, and doing so, realizing we're all writers now. Yeah, we, we are literally the most literate generation of yeah. all time. Now, we don't think of it that way. But there was a time where our grandparents, they wow. would go, they would graduate high school and the last paragraph they wrote was at age 18. Wow. And, and after that, they wow. never wrote another paragraph again. And now with social media, it's like yeah, we're we're texting, we're 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 uh, yeah, tweeting, we're we're constantly writing. And so if you learn how yeah. to write, you'll be you'll be better a better communicator in all of those wow. those paths. Josh, can, can we ask this question? Going on this next question, how do successful people recognize the right opportunity from just good opportunities? If you're at the part in Barcelona, you have not got to this amazing crossroads that Alex had got to yet. Mm-hmm. where Elliot basically looked at him and said... This is Katie's question, by the way, right? Yes, okay. yeah. So Elliot uh, Elliot looked at you and he says, give up your mission, forget the book, come and work for me. And Elliot is this like, he's really who you want to be at his... I mean, not who you want to be, but... Uh, that t- he was my dream mentor, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so talk about, like, this was a good opportunity. How, how were you... Great opportunity. Yeah, so t- I guess talk about that decision-making process. You know, I think the biggest thing we already talked about, you know, that Jeff Bezos, you know, regret minimization framework, mm-hmm. asking yourself when you're 90 years old, would I make that mistake? Mm-hmm. What, you know, would I have regretted not doing it? Mm-hmm. I knew there's a people think, oh, I made a real Steve Jobs has this great quote. He said, um, you know, focus isn't saying no to the bad ideas. Everyone does that. Focus is saying no to the good ideas. So you're left with only the great ones. Mm. And I think that's 
it's sort of like it messes with you. No saying, focusing no to the good ideas. And you brought this up earlier too. No, yeah. no saying, you know, focusing no to the good ideas. And working with Elliot would have been a good idea. Mm-hmm. The question for me is at that time in my life, at 19, would I have regretted and wondered for my entire life, what if I actually stay true to myself and follow this through? Mm-hmm. And the reality is no one can answer that for you because no one's going to be you at 90 if you're lucky enough to live that long. And it was not easy. And I think the reason it wasn't easy was because of all the fear of what I might be giving up, what I might be losing, the suffering I might endure going on my own journey. And by the way, a lot of that was true. Also at the same time, there's this great, I think it's like Andrew Carnegie quote he said, or it might be Mark Twain, I'm not sure. It said, uh, I've experienced many problems in my life. Nine out of 10 of them were in my head. Mm, yeah. And I think when you're making a decision, the human brain is programmed to focus on the worst case scenarios because that's how we have survived. Right. And the reality is some of those will come. I've actually definitely have been situations where I plan out the worst case scenarios and the worst one on the whole list is actually what happened. I don't want to go there right now, but it's definitely, it's <laughs> happened, you know, it's happened. Mm. Uh, the question for me is I know that if I would have worked with Elliot, no matter how great it would have been, there would be a part of myself that would have wondered what would have happened if I actually did what I really wanted. Mm. And at the end of life, and I learned this when my dad passed away two years ago. When you're taking your final breath, you know, God doesn't come down with a report card or with a trophy of, oh, you achieved this or, oh, you didn't achieve that. There's none of that. And in a weird way, that's very liberating. Mm. And it gives you permission to do what you want. Mm. Not what looks good to other people, not what feels good in the moment, but what do you actually want? And I think those are the most important decisions of our lives. Yeah. I imagine that uh, in this question from Ambo here, uh, how do successful people know when to pause? I mean, I think that is, you're talking about, when you're talking about decision making here, because it's not binary, it's not that report card at end of life. And well, you should have done these 16 things and then you would have had a complete life. Then you would have been a good person. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and and so I think it's fascinating to, to look at like wow. what makes a good person. But like, but before we get to that, what, when do successful people know when to pause? I, I think anyone who's successful and making good decisions on a daily basis is pausing multiple times a day. Mm. And, and I think you have to delineate pausing from procrastination, right? Because they're not the same thing. They, they can look like in the moment, in that exact moment, it might be, well, he's just procrastinating. No, it's being thoughtful to step back, to pause for a moment, to temporarily wait so that you can make a, a more informed decision. Yeah, you can pause for a minute. You can pause for a month. Or a semester. Or a semester mm-hmm. or a year or mm-hmm. multiple years. Yeah. I think the beauty in the pause is you're creating space to reconnect with yourself. Mm. And that's what gives you the answer. 
Because there's not the answer, there's your answer. And you can only find that in the pause. Mm. Mm, I like that. Adam asks, how do successful people manage toxic co-workers? So, Get the fuck out. Yeah, <laughs> like, I, the next question. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, now look, sometimes that's not easy. So right. we, can give it, we can give it some nuance. Right. I, I, and I think, that the, I think the answer is successful people don't keep toxic relationships around. They find a way... To, it doesn't mean you don't love yeah. the person or love the coworker or whatever, but you have to love them from a distance and you have to distance yourself from them because toxicity is poisonous to success. Yeah, love from a distance. So even in a scenario where you're in a nine to five and you've got someone in your cubicle next to you who's you know a visceral, nasty, toxic person, you can still show empathy, show love towards them from a distance. It doesn't... So, so yeah, I, I think that's whether that applies to in a nine to five uh, uh, situation mm-hmm. or if it applies to where you're an author and you kind of get to choose who you hang out with every day. Um, you can absolutely... Best part of the job. Yeah, love those people from a distance. And I think the love part, I know this sounds so like hippy dippy and like with my long hair, it does not help my case. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, that love part, like that is really what I do with anyone who who is toxic in my life. Like I will show them love as much as possible, but I will also avoid them as much as possible. You won't fuel the toxicity. Yes. Yeah, that's another, yeah. This has been a a big part of my life. And, you know, they. I like that they said not just toxic people, toxic people at work. Because what that question really is, is when you are in certain circumstances where completely cutting that person out of your life is implausible right now. Right. Right now. Um, and so the question can apply to toxic people at work, toxic people who you're blood related to. And this is a personal journey of mine. And I've been doing a lot of work on this. I'm definitely a work in progress. Some of the things that have helped me <clears throat> have been number one, learning and I had to learn this and I'm still learning this is that I am powerless over them and attempting to have power over them makes my life unmanageable. Mm. Mm. Amen. And if you are, especially someone who's, you know, ambitious or, you know, high performing like the two of you, when you see someone toxic, sometimes our instincts are like, give me a minute with them. I I'll I'll figure this one out. I'll Mm. fix this person. But of course, what is our second most famous quote, Ryan? You can't you get, change the people around you, but, but you, you can, can change the people around you. <laughs> right. There's a, too often we try to change, yeah. like, I'm going to change wow, you. Ah, that's good. <laughs> this is like my highest in Dropping my entire bombs, life. Dropping bombs, man. Dropping Pound, bombs. Pounding table to time ratio. <laughs> this this com- one conversation. Uh, but I mean, it's true. We, what we try to do is like, well, I'm going to change this person no matter wow. what. You can't change the people around you, but you can surround yourself. You can change yeah. the people around you by surrounding yourself with people who are empowering. They may still have, like Ryan and I have radically different beliefs from each other. Uh, we have different political beliefs, different religious beliefs, Who's different right? interests. Oh, I'm uh, right. I mean, Spaghetti Monster definitely <laughs> visits me every night. <laughs> yeah. Well, when you say right, left, or right, wrong? Because <laughs> one of us is right on both ends. Uh, no, um, uh, no. actually, we do have different political beliefs, but uh, they're far more nuanced than, than like right, left. Um, yeah. but, but also, religious beliefs are far more 
uh, nuanced than like well, God of Abraham versus atheism or whatever. It's it it is more nuanced than that. But we do have different beliefs. We also have radically different interests. Um, like I think Hawaii is the most overrated vacation you could ever take. <laughs> like who would want to go to Hawaii ever? And Maui is like one of the most peaceful places I have ever been. <clears throat> it's like amazing. You're but both yeah. right. You're both right. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, it, it, yeah. It's like it is and it isn't. Well, we talked to Andrew right. Schultz about that, yeah. right? And, and so um, where was I going with this? Uh, somewhere with different beliefs. Different beliefs, and, different. Uh, what was the question that we were answering? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> It'll come back to you. It'll come back to you. Well, oh, toxic people at work. Yeah. Toxic people yeah. at work. Well, just, well so, we were just talking about... I think all of this actually applies. Yeah. yeah changing the people around yeah. you and, and surrounding yourself with... with were, were you getting to uh, similar values and you get there different ways? Were you yeah. Kinda... You, you surround yourself with people who have similar values, but their beliefs are probably going to... That's actually what makes life a whole lot more interesting by having people around you who don't believe the same exact thing that you do. Right. But have the same values. I love that. Like, yeah. Like with Josh and I, we have the same values. I mean, you know, kindness, thoughtfulness. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's how we've always been our whole lives, but like we've always got their different ways. But because of that, like I am a much better person, I feel like. Because (laughs) no, (laughs) that's not what I was going to say at all. Alex, you're fired. Leave. (laughs) Why are you trying to start beef between me and Josh, man? No, man, this is a toxic coworker. (laughs) No, I feel like I'm a much better person because I have hung out with someone who has the same values as me, but I look at how he gets to those same, those same values, but through a different path, through different beliefs. And it really helps me, um, it either helps me do one or two things. It helps me to like hold on to my beliefs even tighter, uh, or it helps me to let them go. But either way, it helps me look yeah. at those beliefs, and it yeah. really helps me to examine them. And if it wasn't for Josh, I don't think I would be able to uh, to, to to have the beliefs I have now um, because I certainly like owe credit to him. But no, yeah. uh, I think Josh is a much better person than me because he totally got it right. I am the ambitious one and he is the high functioning one. <laughs> now, I, he, like the, the beliefs thing is echoed by, by this. If you take me and Ryan out for a second, like uh, Sam Harris was on the podcast recently, world renowned atheist. Yeah. you really well known, wrote, wrote a book. Uh, 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 what's it called? In the faith. And uh, I've learned a lot from him, a huge impact on uh, Ryan's and my life. And then a couple of days, we're having Erwin, Erwin McManus on the podcast, who, mm-hmm. you know, the church right across the street, Mosaic, is a, they have, you know, thousands. He, he's the lead pastor there. And uh, I've learned a ton from his work as well. And it's like these two guys, at least on right. the surface, couldn't be more different. But no, they're really similar. Uh, at a core level, they have very similar values, whether it's creativity, whether it's community, whether it's contribution, they just have these different beliefs that get them to their values. Yeah. Yeah, And, you know, to wrap up on the main question of toxic people all work, it's something I care a lot about is this topic. I think it's important to remember first that, you know, we use the word toxic almost as an easy out because it's easy to just make that labeling. Yeah. The reality is... It's almost what, like saying enemy. Right. Well, the reality is, first of all, that's a fair feeling. That person's my enemy. That person's toxic. The more, you know, nuanced reality is probably that person has a lot of pain that they can't process. That person has a lot of pain they can't process. Now, when you're temporarily let's say you can't change who you're around just yet that person is your boss that person is 
you you at this time in your life you're forced to be around that person mm-hmm. two things that you can do for yourself because that's what we're really looking at we've already addressed the fact that you cannot change that person two things you can do for yourself is number one practice healthy boundaries and again if you know the way you do one thing is the way you do everything so if you don't have healthy boundaries in your personal relationships and in your friendships at work you're not going to have that muscle to create healthy boundaries mm-hmm. there's Go a good on. book about that called boundaries if we put a link to that in the show yeah. notes yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing and the second thing is something that I do there's and it's very similar to the quote you brought up there's this quote or prayer that says God Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know, to the, know the difference. difference. Yeah. And when I'm in those moments, I can sometimes close my eyes and say that to myself, and mm-hmm. it gives me some grounding. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, really? those boundaries are so important, man. And it's also you get to create them, like because often the toxic you have rela- agency. Yeah. yeah, the toxic relationships often try to push through our boundaries or cre- like when have they us see follow boundaries, their boundaries they go nuts yes they take out the heavy artillery and yeah. and yeah. The, one of the best ways to get other people to respect your boundaries is to respect theirs as much as possible also speaking of wisdom our next question is from wisdom scribble how do successful people stay motivated before they actually become successful and there's a second question here and how do they motivate themselves to continue after they achieve their per, uh, personal success so if, if someone achieves their personal success quite often they become demotivated or they 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 rest on their laurels is is the the common phrasing there so it's two separate questions here for that second part i i think about um there is a recently successful hip-hop artist uh, nf i'm sure you're familiar with with his work maybe but anyway he he had his most recent album come out his last two albums were number one billboard successes and he said it was like the darkest time of his life because he realized like oh i've achieved everything i ever wanted when i was broke and and uh i've i've literally made millions now there are thousands of people coming to my shows and I thought it was going to feel different from this. Yeah. I thought success was going to be the answer to bring me happiness. Fill that hole. Yeah, and yeah. it and it didn't. And so I, I think about that. If we're if we're waiting for these external factors to fulfill us, man, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment. But we're talking about motivation here. How do successful people stay motivated before they actually become successful? Did you find some commonalities with some folks that you talked about in in the third door? Yes, definitely. There is a ah, uh, there. Th- this is a big question. Mm-hmm. It's a big, important question. And I've been reading this book this past year. It's one of my favorite books I've ever read. It's called "Sick in the Head" by Judd Apatow, where he interviews the most successful comedians alive. And there's this one part where Judd Apatow is explaining how, from his experience with different comedians, most of them start wanting to get on that stage behind that mic because there's something in them that needs to be seen Mm. because they felt either unloved or invisible or broken or not enough. And being a stand-up comedian in the beginning, I would say is out of all jobs, one of the hardest upticks because you are just trudging. You know, we talked about this in the beginning, going through that, you know, trudging phase. Mm -hmm. Stand-up comedy is by far one of the hardest ones to get through that early I think, phase. I think I heard Andrew Schultz talk about this. He, he, he'll ask someone, or maybe it was Theo Vaughn, but anyway, um, we've had a few comedians on here, and uh, the the thing that, that comes up is, uh, I think it was Dave Chappelle asked Andrew Schultz, 
like how long you been doing comedy and he was like you know whatever 14 years and he's like well that's how old you are in comedy Mm -hmm. like you're still a teenager right you're only 14 years old and and i I think uh, that was profound because like you take a guy who's 35 is like well yeah i've been doing this for 14 years yeah you're a teenager mm. right and thinking about it that way is like if you've been doing comedy for four years you're still a toddler basically right. yeah. even though like doing something for four years you think you would start to like get some sort of mastery no nope, you're still figuring out how to walk basically yeah yeah so you know what judd avatar goes on to explain is that's sometimes many of the motivations that get you on the subconscious motivations no one's aware of that's why they start doing what they're doing and then he talks about if you look at the comedians that actually have longevity to their careers, it's the ones that at a certain point, either early on or midway through, had some awareness of what was fueling them in the beginning. It was able to consciously swap them out for different motivations. Oh. And I really like that because I've definitely seen that across a lot of people who I interview too. Hmm. Which, and again, I'm not saying the only reason you know so-and-so got up is because they're insecure. The only reason I wrote the third door is because I felt not enough. I'm finally at a point in my life where I can say that was part of it. Mm. I wasn't conscious of it. I wasn't, I wouldn't say it was the only reason or the main reason, but that was part of it. That's the first thing I would say. So can, can yeah. you, I'm sorry, cause I'm still trying to grasp that. So give me another example of how you would swap the. I think, you know, the first step is just awareness of what's been fueling you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you brought up that NF example. It sounded like when his album hit number one, that was that moment for him. Yeah. He realized this is, what got me fired up to get to this point is not going to keep me going. So I better swap it out. For I better swap. Else. And it sounds uh, like he maybe didn't finish the other half of the story. I, I think he's still working on he's that. He's still right? working on and, it. And so for me, what you swap it out with almost every time now, there'll be different uh, derivations of this, but, but it's service to the greater good. Like what serves yeah. the greater good? Cause it has to be it's about something outside more of than yourself. Me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's it. It has to be about contribution service to others uh, because uh, and I, this is what I was actually trying to get Andrew Schultz to talk about because I, he's not all the way there yet either. He's like, I'm doing things that bring me joy. Mm. I'm like, that's great. I think that's half of it. Yeah. But if it's only what is bringing you joy, that's masturbation. Yeah. That's just pulling the pleasure lever. Right, yeah, right. right. It, whereas if it's contributing beyond yourself and bringing you joy, that is fueling you. It's allowing you to grow in ways that that um, right. continue to fuel your your passion or your motivation, whatever you want to call it. But then also, you're going to get the real satisfaction, the real benefit when other people's are, people are benefiting from it yeah. as well. Love that. Yeah. Kate asks, how do successful people get unstuck when they are in a mid level job but want an upper level position? So. Ryan, you and I were—we were like the kings of who gives a shit. Yeah, like we—we were—we we worked really hard, and by age thirty, we're middle managers of a very large corporation, and uh, realized like, oh wait a minute, like I guess I can keep climbing this ladder, and I think this is sort of where Kate is right now. My my pithy advice to Kate would be: make sure your ladder is pressed against the correct building. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Be- because if it's not, you're going to keep climbing. You get to the top and say, oh, like oh. I set this. Now I have to climb all the way back down. Yeah. Well, I, I think when anyone. Or jump down and break a leg on the way down. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think when anyone's stuck, I mean, the, for me, when, whenever I get stuck, the best way for me to get unstuck is to change my state, to like radically change my state. So mm. when I think about where the minimalists started, it was with this 21 uh, day packing party 
that Josh and I came up with. And that was a very radical change for me. I packed up everything in my house. I boxed it all up. I had never been in a situation before where I had to unpack things as I needed and write about it and be deliberate with what I was unpacking. And by the end of those 21 days, I mean, I did have a new found perspective. It wasn't like this, oh, now I know that Josh and I are going to write books and we're going to have a podcast and we're going to, like, it wasn't that at all. But I had this newfound perspective on how I wanted to start living my life differently. You cleaned the energy, you cleaned the karma. Yeah. Yeah, it, was, so, it, was, it was a new direction in, in many ways, and I think that's where where, where sometimes we, we yeah, if, if Ryan and I would have been like, all right, what does the 10-year plan look like? No, no, no. It was like uh, we've pivoted significantly, 15 degrees, 20 degrees, 180 degrees, whatever it is, and that's just a new direction. And from there, you know, the dots always connect in, in retrospect, right? Like it, you can look back now. There's been 10 years since we started doing the whole minimalism thing and you're like oh yeah that makes it there's a sort of narrative overlay of this happened and this happened and this happened but no quite often it's like well these four things happened sort of all at once and then the next two things happened right. here and they kind of overlapped with this and and it all works out and you can make a nice linear narrative of it but as it's unfolding it's important to have that new direction so but the thing i would encourage kate is make sure that you're you're focused on, on you know, whether it's that ladder analogy or moving in the right direction now, Alex, uh, for Kate, is there anything about getting unstuck? The biggest thing I'll say, and something I liked about her question too, is this question specifically seems to be tailored for people who actually have done quite well already, but are sort of at this plateau. Mm -hmm. And by far the one person who I interviewed on this journey that taught me the best on this lesson was someone who I did not expect. It was the rapper Pitbull. Love that chapter. Right? Yeah. You do, I did not see it coming. No. I did not see it coming. It's funny because all I know about Pitbull is his music, but then after reading that chapter, it's like, yeah. He's a he's a beast. Yeah. And the whole Pitbull chapter is really about when you have, uh, you know, achieved, how do you get that growing? How do you level up? Um, because that's the hard part. You know, it's hard to get to level one or two and three, but how do you keep it going at that point is a whole different thing. Mm. And with Pitbull, that was sort of like my question. I kept pulling at it and, you know, he was taking me in different directions. And then finally at the, toward the end of the interview, he stopped talking. And this was the first time I think in my life, I didn't ask a follow-up. I just experimented and see what happens if I don't ask anything right now. And there was like this silence for like 20 seconds which is very, in an interview, is very long. Mm -hmm. Feels like an eternity. And then he said, you know, last month, this is Pitbull talking, he's like, you know, last month I was in Mexico with Carlos Slim Jr., you know, one of the richest people on earth. And he was in the office and he looked to Carlos Slim Jr. and he's like, hey man, I don't know what you got going on in your life, but I'll intern for you. You know, I'll fetch you coffee, donuts, whatever you want. Enter. You have to. I'm not interviewing Pitbull in this beginning. I'm interviewing Pitbull very recently. This is a guy who can, you know, headline Madison Square Garden. Yeah, multiple and I, nights. Multiple nights. And I'm looking in his eyes right now. And anyone who hears this thinks it's sarcasm or hype. I'm looking in his eyes, and I know he is dead serious right now. Yeah. That he really meant this. And I'm looking at him here, Pitbull talking, and I'm realizing, okay, here's a guy, right, Madison Square Garden, or can walk through record labels like a king. At the same time, he's asking to fetch coffee for Carlos Slim Jr. Mm -hmm. And Pitbull starts telling me about, and by the way, I'm not asking him any question. He's just sharing this at this point. He's telling me how he, you know, at night, 
goes and visits the offices of like Google and Apple literally with a notepad taking notes. And I realize what he just shared to me was the answer that I was looking for in the beginning. I just didn't have the right question. And that is his secret to constantly leveling up, which is while he is the CEO of one aspect of his life, he's the intern of the other. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Humbling yourself and being willing to humble yourself. And, and quite often we put ourselves on this pedestal. I, I, I would never do that. I'm above that. And what you're saying is, nah, he wasn't you above that at all. You are constantly an intern. If you want to, you know, it, like the Lion King, if you want to be Mufasa at the same time, you have to keep staying Simba. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. We've got a couple more here. Hari says, any suggestions for transitioning? Now, this is a Freudian slip here, but I like it. <laughs> transitioning out of a deadbeat career. <laughs> I think you mean dead-end career, Hari, but deadbeat career. <laughs> I is, like it better. Yeah. It's more real. Yeah. So so I, I think that is... Uh, I think you couple that question with sort of Kate's question. Uh, and in fact, if I were to add anything to, to Kate's question, I was sometimes figuring out what is enough. Because sometimes, I, I learned this also in the corporate world, I took a step back toward the very end because I realized I got this promotion that I didn't even mm -hmm. want. Mm -hmm. But like everyone said, well, you'd be stupid if you didn't take this promotion. I love mm -hmm. that you'd be stupid if you didn't, but would I be smart if I did? Right. <laughs> right? No, it's, I it's think that's that. a that's big good. thing. That's good. And, and and actually, no, I was I was stupid either way. <laughs> It was just more stupid to take the to take the promotion, and, and I think we very rarely ask ourselves what is enough. Ryan mm. and I did this experiment recently with uh, all of our Patreon. Th thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. We decided, hey, six thousand Patreon members is enough. It's enough to pay podcast Sean mm. and Jessica who handles our social media and Jordan No More over here who does our our filmmaking, and also it pays me and Ryan a little bit of money. But we we rarely ask like. What is enough? It's always more. Like, yeah, I want to sell three million books. It's like, well, why? Is it so you can build wells in Africa? No, it's so I can sell. Say, I sold three million books. Yeah. Well, wait a minute. What? Yeah. What does that even mean? And right. Yeah. And so, like, uh, what is enough? And so, whether it's Kate or Hari, um, maybe identify what your enough is, mm -hmm. so you know where you're transitioning to, dude. So for Hari. This is where minimalism really came in for me and Josh is, you know, I was stuck in this rut of like, well, you know, I make like, you know, 150,000 bucks a year and I spend every dime of it. In fact, I was in debt and I got to pay this car payment. I got to pay this, this house payment. I got to pay off this credit card debt. And well, I just, I have to keep this job because I got all this going mm -hmm. and it's like, no, no, sell your car, sell your house. Get rid of as much debt as possible uh, so you don't have to make that much money. If Hari, if you want to change your employment, you need to change right now what you are, wh where your finances are going, like first and foremost, because I'm assuming Hari is stuck because he's got to pay his bills. He has to keep this job in order to keep his lifestyle going. So for me and for Josh, I mean, that's where minimalism helped us to get unstuck. It's what helped us get out of those dead end jobs. It was being able to take a step back so we could take some steps forward in a new direction that we wanted to go. Totally. That's, I love that. Man, I feel like you could tweeze that out and make it a, a quickie episode or something, podcast, Sean. <laughs> we got a uh, another question here from Hawksbill. Mm -hmm. How do successful people navigate their home lives? Kids, spouse, home obligations, errands, etc. How do they find the work-life balance and still manage to crush it in their businesses? Um, I don't know what you think about this, Alex, but I don't really believe in work-life balance. I believe in work-life integration. And, and um, really 
I, I just because like I, I find there'll be times where it makes more sense for me to work more for working on a project. There are other times. I, I think Ryan, you and I talked about this. We were uh, who were we talking to about this, Sean? Was this uh, Travis Shakespeare? He uh, uh, on our, we I think we did a Patreon episode where. We determined that Ryan and I work somewhere between five and eighty hours a week, depending on the week. <laughs> right. And I love when people are like, "What's your day like?" And I'm like, <laughs> "Give me like what day?" Yeah. What's a, yeah right. We, <laughs> Last year's days we were different from this year's five days. Five and eighty. I have not heard a more true sentence when it comes to being a creative entrepreneur. Right. Yeah. Because sometimes it, it <laughs> dictates good. that. Right. <laughs> it, but good. but. Yeah, I'm sure you you oh, saw so great. you saw successful I people. That. I mean, not everyone is a a young single male who's who's you know uh, jet setting his way around the world. There are people with families and obligations mm-hmm. and home lives and kids. What did you What did you see? How did they How did they balance that? First of all, I think you hit it out of the park with your answer. When it comes to the question of work life balance. I first want to just stop and push back to the question because that makes no sense. Hmm. Work And first of all, I can say this because I have asked the question many times myself, so yeah. I'm almost talking to myself here. Work-life balance makes no sense because work is part of life. Yeah, it yeah. presupposes that you have a life and then you have work. Correct. Work-life balance is like saying, well, when you go to a restaurant, how do you do appetizer meal balance? <laughs> <laughs> Can you rephrase that? Yeah, appetizer meal balance. Mm. Well, isn't appetizer part of my meal? Mm. Work is part of your life. So let's first stop asking that question and ask a much better question of how do I balance the different obligations or different priorities or different desires in my life? Because that's the that's heart the of, root of that's it. the heart yeah. of the question. That's a real thing that everyone struggles with. Yeah. Our society just came up with this term work life balance to describe something that's not work-life balance. Now, I think you said it great. Whether it's integration or harmony, uh, I'll call back on Jeff Bezos, someone I talked about earlier. He said something great. I heard him say that if you are at home and your home life is invigorating you and filling up your cup, when you go back to the office, you are invigorated and if the things at the office are filling your cup there and you go back home and the things are filling, that is an optimal life. Now, again, that's not how things are. Life, things fall apart. Yeah. But the question is, are you spending your time or are you investing your time? Mm -hmm. I heard someone literally say that two weeks ago. Are you spending your time or are you investing your time? Wow. And I think when it comes to what happens in your personal life, what happens in your family life, what happens at work, what happens when you're traveling, are you just constantly spending your time and your energy or are you using those things as investments? Is the time you're spending with your wife or with your daughter an investment into your joy and your fulfillment or are you feeling like you're just spending your time that you could be spending somewhere else? Mm. And those are really hard questions to ask yourself. Yeah. And I think Important but hard. Those yeah. hard questions, uh, we put them off because they're hard. And and when we do that, it um, it allows us to take the, the easy path. You know, to go with the flow, but but eventually, that doesn't take you where where you want to go. It just takes you wherever it's going. Mm. Last question here. Mo says we save the the difficult one for last. How do successful people typically deal 
with failure. Your book is a, is a, a catalog of failures in a way, <laughs> yeah. right? But but it seems to That's me it's going to be my autobiography a catalog. <laughs> a catalog of failures but man, the Alex Benayan story this is why it resonated with me so much man and that's why I read it from front to back in one day it's like not only did I want to see you know how you got to Bill Gates like the, 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 the narrative was great but watching how you dealt with all these failures was uh, it was incredible man thank you I appreciate that and you know what's funny is that was again we talked about this in the very beginning that was not my intention with this book the subtitles literally has the word success in bold not the word failure but what i've learned at the end of the seven-year journey you know you know we talked about implicit versus explicit messages one of the strongest implicit messages of our childhood is you know you go to kindergarten and they teach you the opposite of white is black the opposite of up is down the opposite of success is failure but it took seven years of studying success to realize that's not how the world works. What I've learned, and it was in one of the final chapters where I was doing an interview and I realized success and failure are just different results of the same thing. They're different sides of the same coin. Mm. They're different sides of the coin of trying. So the opposite of success isn't failure. The opposite of success is not trying. Right. And I remember at that moment, literally having this out-of-body experience and swearing to myself, committing to myself, that I would do my best to be unattached to succeeding and unattached to failing and instead be committed to trying and growing. And that's what's changed my life the most. Yeah. I mean, failure is part of the process. And the more you can get comfortable with failing, the the faster you'll be able to recoup from those failures and and really take away and learn from those failures. I mean, they, we talk about this a lot and it's such a cliche, like, you know, fail as much as possible, but dude, go out and fail. Go and ask for a refill you on your what? cheeseburger. <laughs> go and stop a cop and see if you can drive his car. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, literally. Well, this, I wouldn't do the latter. <laughs> well, no, there's literally this dude, and Sean, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's just, there's this guy who gives, who gives this Your wonderful. white privilege is showing. I was I about to say, like, he definitely was a Middle Eastern or black. So he gives, he gives, it, he gives this amazing, uh, he's not white, but he, uh, there's this dude who gives an amazing TED talk about how he literally did those things. Uh, he went out to an airport and like, oh, yeah, yeah. and what asked for, name? I don't remember his name. We're going to have to put a link to it in the show notes. But the dude went out with, with the with the goal of failing as much as possible and the spoiler alert, the beautiful part of this whole, uh, this whole Ted talk is like these crazy ass things that he has to do. He got told yes on every single one of them. And no, he wasn't a white dude. He was a dude, but he was not a white dude. Mm. And, uh, it's, it's such an important lesson. Cause like, it, so goes life. The more you practice writing, the better you're going to be a writer. The more you practice podcasting, the better you're going to be a podcaster. The more you practice snowboarding, the better you're going to be a snowboarder. The more you practice failing, the better you're going to be at failing. Yeah, and the and and you're going to accidentally succeed is what what he yes. found out. Like you you have all of these accidental successes, and yeah. I, I think about you know, the the one of the hardest things I can imagine doing is being a stand up comic. We were just talking about being yeah uh, about Judd Apatow and and other folks who do stand up comedy. Like the road to success as a stand up is failure after failure night after night after night when ryan and i go to the comedy store sometimes we see some comedians bomb some major comedians yeah and you know what they take it in stride they're like oh that didn't work cross that off the list right right but it, what i think is important about this conversation though is also to acknowledge how painful it is oh because i think what is a disservice when we talk about failure mm -hmm. is we talk about the macro which is it's good for the long term right. of our success. But we forget about the micro, which is 
you will feel like you are getting punched in the gut yes. over and over and over again if you have that specific mindset, which most human beings do, which mm-hmm. is this says I'm not enough or you know, I wasn't made for this. And I, you read it. I literally had times where I felt like my insides were black and blue and I was coughing up blood from yeah. the amount of rejections and failures and mistakes. And I think it's a disservice to not talk about that part sure. because when you are a normal human being going through the normal entrepreneurial process of achieving a dream, you will feel like that. And what happens is when we don't talk about that feeling, people feel isolated like something is wrong. Mm. And that's when they actually start questioning. I can speak from experience. They think maybe their path is broken. Mm-hmm. Uh. But in reality, you're actually on the human journey of growing. Yeah, yeah. Well, what, what the failure thing, like the more you practice though, the less it's gonna hurt. And, and I think when the implicit thing, when people ask, how do I get over failure? They're asking, how do I get over that pain of failure? Oh, uh, yeah. So, it, it, wow, that's good. Yeah. I think it's the, the leaning into it. Another thing that Schultz talked about when. Ah, oh, that's when he, so good. <laughs> I just need to hide. That's so good. I mean, it wasn't as good for you to pound your fist, but whatever, man. <laughs> it was a finger point. It was, a, it was more of a finger point. It was an accusation. That was good. <laughs> Thanks, man. The, the, the thing Schultz talks about is leaning into the failure, too, right? Yeah. Because when, when he gets a. Uh, like a cringe like when people give you a oh like when he tells a joke it's like maybe too soon or whatever Mm. he said he'll just tag it with something even more extreme like he realized like i'm gonna lean into this failure see Mm. if i can actually fail my way out of it into success Mm. and so sometimes that that speed (laughs) it's that but you're still graceful at it as you get more comfortable with that as you sit in the failure and actually lean into it you get more comfortable with it then you can work through it and realize what isn't working about it. He said trying, you know, it's the doing, the process, the action. And you say, I'm doing this, it's not working. I'm gonna keep doing it to figure out what isn't working about it. When you're writing this book, there's a whole lot that isn't working. And those those pieces hit the cutting room floor. Those are those sentences themselves are failures. You don't get to see them because what's what's done is this nice pristine book with the beautiful cover that we didn't talk about. Um, but but ultimately you have this book. You have all the failures that are sort of outside of the book, but it takes all those failures to have the the final product. Dude, Andrew Schultz is a perfect analogy that like some of his favorite jokes uh-huh. is when he does crowd work and I hate crowd work. Me crowd too. work is such a low brow. Hey, there's a guy who's embarrassed in the front row and I'm going to make fun of him and now we're all going to laugh at this one guy. Right. Like that is such a that's well, it's hard. It's really hard to do it in a graceful, thoughtful, funny way, but not he, in a mean. Right. Right, exactly, exactly. So like for me, I don't like crowd work, but some of my favorite jokes, some of my favorite uh uh, uh, uh you know, clips that I've seen of Andrew Schultz is his crowd work. And it's because he leans into it so much. Yeah. He's, he's one of the rare exceptions where... I love seeing him do crowd work. Right. Yeah. He, he has really great bits, but somehow extemporaneously because he is he has done it so much. I'm with you, Ryan. Yeah. I hate seeing crowd... Like, yeah. I won't sit in the front row at, at the comedy store just because I I don't want to deal with the crowd work because usually it's awful. It's, it's people who are being mean and, and it doesn't work out. Mm-hmm. But what Andrew's doing is he's actually including them in. He's yes. like treating them like he would a close friend. That's so, great. He'll, he'll like I'll rib Ryan about something like when I'm saying, "Oh, your white privilege is showing." Like I'm obviously joking with him because it will we'll ri- 95 joking. No, no, no. no. <laughs> I, I'm 100 percent joking. Like it's ribbing him. Yeah. But he'll do. Andrew will do that with someone who is 
he doesn't even know, but he's treating them like yeah. people friends. can feel your intention. Yeah, yeah. People and can the, feel your the intention. difference is with his crowd work, we're totally like going off on a tangent here. But the people that he does crowd work with laughs with him. Yeah, mm. we're like most of the crowd work that the person's not. Everyone else is laughing at that person, but they're they might that's be chuckling great, out of like a nervous a chuckle. Point. But like I've seen him doing crowd work, and the dude he's making fun of is like slapping his knee, yeah. like rolling on the floor, funny. I saw the one this past week. He, uh, he's like, "What are you wearing?" <laughs> yes, you Did like you dressed up. In a, yeah, and he said, "Stand up!" And the dude stands up. He goes, "I've never seen someone get shorter when they stand up." <laughs> <laughs> that's really good but the guy was like loving it like yeah. you could tell like it was it was a friendly interaction he was not being aggressive or accusatory he was like hey we're buddies right now and we're gonna pick on each You're other be together part of the show yeah yeah, yeah, good yeah. and we're yeah. gonna do this together right alex i want to thank you brother i think you've written something meaningful uh you've been on a meaningful journey i hope it, it continues i want to say thank you to you for for being here today for answering these questions with us uh, where should we send folks i know thirddoorbook.com is a good place to go to get the book they can follow you on social media alex benayan is your handle on all of those is there anywhere else we should send folks i think wherever you like to buy books whether it's in bookstores or on amazon or on audible wherever you're comfortable makes me very happy and i'm very grateful cool it's beautiful thank thanks you. for being thank here thank you man. both you're awesome man thank great you, story this dude. is so fun give me a hug man. yeah man All right, y'all. Love people. Use things. We'll see you next time. You can be here, man. The Minimalists. <laughs>